Is this Keith Taylor? Hello, Keith Taylor. Hello, Liz Washington. How are you? Oh, I'm doing just fine. How are you Good. doing? I'm, you know, doing all right. Doing all right. Beautiful day up here in northern Michigan. Yeah, you said that uh, there was a big, big storm that happened when last night? Last night, yes, yes. Whole, whole parts of Douglas Lake are without electricity. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but not us. We, we have it. Oh, wow. So not you up at the biological station, huh? Not, not us at the biological station. We're fine. We're in good shape. Yeah, and how about Glenn's Grocery Store? Over Glenn's, in gro- Glenn's Grocery Store right where and looks very busy right now, so they must their electricity must be fine. <laughs> good. <laughs> that is good. Yes, because you you are talking to me from uh the biological station, broadly speaking, but more specifically from the parking lot at Glenn's grocery store in Sheboygan and I, I am indeed. We have very we have very spotty um connections at the biological station. So I, I brought my cell phone in here into Sheboygan so we could have our little conversation. Yeah, and that is so much appreciated. Thank you for being on Living Writers with me. Well, it's my pleasure indeed. This is uh, this is a lot of fun. It's fun, and it's fun to do like this too. I've never done uh, any conversation like this with a cell phone. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I also want to thank T. Hetzel, who is in Florida right now, for allowing me to step in in her absence and have a, what I anticipate will be a wonderful conversation with you. Yeah, my thanks to T, too. T's great. What's she on? T's in Florida. That's good for T. Yes. In sunny, sunny weather, where there are no big, big storms, unless you count hurricanes. Right, right. We won't count hurricanes. No, let's not. So let me just introduce you then. Uh, you, sir, are Keith Taylor. Uh, you, well, you hail from Alberta, Canada, and currently live in Ann Arbor, but uh, you spend a lot of time up at the biological station teaching an environmental writing course, and in Ann Arbor at the U- University of Michigan, you serve as the coordinator of the undergraduate creative writing program in the English department. I do. And. Good uh, job. Primarily, your your invitation on Living Writers Today has to do with the two books that you put out in 2011. Yeah. One is an anthology of ghost stories, which you co-edited with Laura Kajitschke. And another Kaj- little... Kajitschke, yep, good enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah we, we're practicing. Good. And then another little book of poems called Marginalia for a Natural History. And you said that many poems in there deal with the time that you spent with field biologists up at the they, biological station. They, they, they do indeed. And it's, uh, it's, I, I steal, they tell me things and I steal them and put them in poems. Well, and then I, I tell, then I, then I get their permission afterward. Yeah, isn't it the fact, or isn't it the case that great artists steal and lesser artists just imitate? Very good. Who was it who said that? Mark Twain, somebody like that? Yeah. Maybe, yeah, somebody or T.S. Eliot, somebody. T.S. Eliot, that was it. It was, yeah, T.S. Eliot. And then I think Picasso stole that quote, didn't he? Uh, well, he certainly could have. You know, he certainly stole lots of images from lots of different kinds of people over the years. So. Yep, that's our Picasso. Uh, that's our Picasso, yeah. Um, so, well, you, okay, so you said that many of these poems were inspired by the field biologists. Were those field biologists primarily from the biological station or solely from there, or have you hung out elsewhere to talk well, about? Well, most of the last seven years, this this year, this summer is the seventh summer I've, I've taught up here, um, and um, but I've 
but I always say one of the reasons they brought me up here is because they knew I was uh, comfortable around people who knew these kinds of things. These kinds of things are part of my interests. I'd done a fair amount of environmental advocacy over the years. Um, I'd written things. I'd been more than comfortable with the label uh, nature writer, although not everybody is comfortable being categorized. Um, and uh, but I'm I'm quite comfortable with the people who want to understand people want to understand me as being a nature writer. That's that's fine with me. Uh, plus, I'm just sort of interested in the kinds of information available to uh, to field biologists, people like yourself, Liz. Um, and uh, and I think that a lot of that information is important. I think it's important um, both for us as citizens, um, you know, citizens of the planet, um, the our environmental responsibilities. But uh, also, it's it's there's just a lot of cool stuff, and there's a lot of cool things to know about the world, and and a lot of those things deserve their own poems, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, can you tell me then a little bit more about your class that you teach up there? Well, yeah, they started. They wanted the class. I think it's part of the the whole effort at the university to this interdisciplinary effort and. Um, a few years ago, when the program in the environment started, uh, it, was, it was an attempt to reach across traditional barriers between the sciences and the humanities. And shortly after that, I think the, I think the program in the environment is celebrating its 10th year this year with a whole bunch, bunch of wonderful speakers in the fall. Nice. Uh, and uh, they, people knew I'd been involved with these kinds of issues and wanted to find some way to involve me in that. And uh, it wasn't working out real well in the uh, regular term, but uh, but in in the summer term we could do it. And I really wanted to. I'd known about the biological station for a long time, and I really wanted to um, find a way to get up here and spend some time here. And uh, uh, when they said, you know, can you suggest a course? And I said, I said, yeah. So we we actually called since everything up here is a little bit different, and these are set up like as five credits. Uh, lab courses as opposed to three credit courses, which most of our classes are in the English department in Ann Arbor, had to sort of design a class that's both writing and reading. So we read five books, both of popular science um, and of literature, literature based in the Great Lakes. So, uh, uh, for instance, today I just talked about uh, Donnie Joe Campbell's novel, uh, Once Upon a River, which is a fabulous novel that was published last year. Um, a deep and dark novel uh, with a, a young woman living alone on a river in Michigan and um, observing the world and, and being observed by the world. And uh, we just talked about that today. Usually start off with uh, Aldo Leopold's A Sand County Almanac. Sure. Very important. Wisconsinite. Important book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we, and then we end, we end with, uh, you know, sort of regular science by E.O. Wilson. So it's, uh, we move all over the map and then the students have to write the, do a bunch of writing, and uh, it, so far I think it's been working pretty well. I'm pretty, courses, I, I'm pretty pleased with the course. The course has a kind of reputation around uh, of U of M undergraduates now, at least students in the program and the environment. So uh, I think it, it looks like it'll be ongoing. So you said that the class that you teach up there is structured pretty similarly to a lab that you would teach down here. Well, no, no. I mean, it's it's we're we're the, the, all the courses up here are lab courses, and for those of you who've taken a lot of science classes, you know what that means, that you do have to spend a lot of time in the laboratory. Um, 
and, and a lot of your class time and a lot of your expectations of you as a student would be the work that you do in the lab. And writing doesn't quite fit that. Our writing workshops don't quite fit the same pattern because the writing is done. Uh, usually most of the writing is done outside the workshop, and we do the critiques in the workshop. So I have to find a little more time for my students to do the work and then bring it in, and then we do the workshops you know, in the afternoons um, up here. And uh, so it's a little bit, it's a little bit different. Got to have to have to make some accommodations to make it fit the schedule of of work that's done up here at the research station. But I think we've worked it out. So then, do you and the students have public readings at the end of the course, or do you produce some sort of book or chat book by the end? Um, well, the, interestingly enough, the students we do the students can can um, post their work on the uh, mynorth.com. MyNorth.com is the website for Traverse Magazine. And that's um, M-Y-N-O-R-T-H dot com? That's, that's it indeed, MyNorth.com. And um, the students post there in the summertime. And quite frankly, we po- probably most of the things that are posted on the blog entries there are from us. Um, I think we've got 10 or 11 up so far this year, and there'll probably be another 10 or 11 before we're done. And they pick, sometimes they pick some and foreground them on the front page of their website. And some of our students have even gone on to publish with Travers Magazine. So it's, uh, we, do, we do do that. Uh, we pick one of the major papers we do. We pick one paper a year to present at the um, scientific symposium that the Biostation does at the end of each of its courses. So our students will present there. One of our students will present a paper there. We all we listen to everybody's papers, and then we vote on who we want to represent us. So. Some, it's not always someone I would pick. Sometimes the huh. students want someone other than the one I would pick, but I've learned to live with that. I just get one vote among 13. And you don't get a veto, huh? I don't get a veto, <laughs> although if it was something absolutely inappropriate, I probably would pull rank. Yeah, that uh, that could be awkward anyway. It, it could, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's really... I've never, I, I've never had to pull rank so far, so... Yeah, good. Yeah, that that's great that you guys have a kind of a tangible product at the end of all your hard work in yeah. the summer. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fun. And 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 you know, now that we have this uh, ability to get this out on a on a on a really legitimate website. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of fun too and it's good for the students. That's actually, you know, that's actually because that's a that website is pretty well known and that's actually resume fodder. So, uh they actually get something that they can put on their on their resume for the next step in their lives. Yeah, that's wonderful. Living intentionally, it reminds me of. I've been thinking about that lately. Yeah, living intentionally. We should all live more intentionally. Mm-hmm. So do you have similar ideas regarding your kind of philosophy of, I guess, teaching and bringing writers together, um, especially in a natural setting, when it comes to the Bear River Writers Conference? I know that you you direct that conference. Oh, I do. Yeah, the Bear River Writers Conference is a little bit different. It's a it's a week it's a weekend thing. Um, and even though I spend a fair amount of my time raising money so we can give scholarships, probably only about twenty five percent of the people at the Bear River Conference are, are scholarship supported. So that's it's mostly people who choose to come to that. Mostly um, older writers. We do have college students. We even have some scholarships available to high school students. Oh. Most of most of the student, most of the people at the writers conference though are are older people um, who are, who are choosing to spend that part of the summer. We usually do that the weekend after uh, Memorial Day, and those people want to you know hang out and want to have 
some uh, uh, established writers look at their work and things like that. But the hope of the Bear River Conference, because it too happens in northern Michigan, not at the same place as the biological station. It happens at Camp Michigania down on Walloon Lake, just a little bit south of Petoskey. Um, but the hope is there that we get these writers from around the country to come to northern Michigan um, and be a part of this sort of community of writers. That's been going on now for, uh, we just had the 12th, this was the 12th year of that one. Uh, and it seems to have worked pretty well. We've got people who are publishing books and people who have established their own little writing communities in their own cities and across the country. And, and uh, uh, it's become very popular. It's a very popular place. We take 100 students each year, and we, we fill up very quickly once we open for registration in January. Yeah, so I actually was wondering, in what tangible ways does the conference encourage the attendees to produce new work in the way that you're saying? Well, um, we we uh, when we did the Bear River Writers Conference. There's a lot of writers conferences around the country, and we specifically set ours up to uh, generate new work rather than look at work that they bring in already written. Uh, we tell the people who teach for us, the writers who teach for us, that we're looking specifically to generate new work. Well, the first year we did this, the guy who was poet laureate of the United States at the time, wonderful poet named Robert Haas. Uh, was our guest, our featured writer. Plus, he was sort of an advisor to us as we began the conference. And he said, you know, he, he, he said he didn't think we, the country needed another conference where people brought existing work. Um, he thought we needed a conference that generated new work. And he told a funny story about that, that he was, he was looking at a conference and he was looking over a poem by an older participant, and, and Robert Haas is a very is a very kind and gentle man, and I'm sure he was being very kind and gentle, but he said he had some pointed criticisms, and when he got done, the gentleman grabbed his poem, and he stood up, and he said, well, Richard Hugo loved that poem, and he stomped away, and, and Bob Haas was a little bit stunned, and then he said, and then I realized Richard Hugo had been dead for 17 years, so... Uh, this guy had been taking his poem around to writer, summer writers' conferences for 17 years. Wow. Uh, probably just because he had money to spend. It wasn't doing him any good. It wasn't doing the world of letters any good. So that, that's been our criterion. We say we will do what we're looking for is new work. Um, and the workshops are set up in such a way that they generate new work. And everybody <laughs> knows that from the get-go. That's on our website. That's, you know, that's a very clear thing. So that we're looking for the beginnings of new projects. Okay, so you create a culture of, of... Yeah, that yeah, that's a better way of putting it. We create a culture of generating new work for this week. It's, it's uh, you know, it's been fun. It's been fun. It's a lot of work sometimes, but it's worth it. Okay, so we are going to take a break now, and let's play Stravinsky now, and then after we get... Oh, okay. Yeah, after we come back, then you can tell us a little bit about, um, about Stravinsky and the Rite of Spring. Okay, I will. Great.
Oh, that was fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, Stravinsky. When I was growing up, my best friend, my very best friend, and um, after I moved in high school, I moved to the States for the first time. And uh, the guy I was closest to and who shaped me and I shaped him and we supported each other's in our artistic endeavors, he was a musician. And uh, he fell in love with that piece, and then and he played it for me, and I fell in love with that piece and that gorgeous, haunting opening of that with the oboe. Um, just sort of became a part of my life, and uh, uh, and became probably the piece of music that that uh, moves me. Certainly, the piece of classical music that moves me the most. I years and years and years ago, told oh, gosh, it's, uh, thirty-five years ago, I heard that performed by the Chicago Symphony under the direction of Seiji Ozawa. And they began that, that opening, that beautiful haunting opening with the oboe, and I was so excited that my nose started to bleed. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> but I wasn't going to leave because I wanted to hear that piece of music. So I just sat there with my nose pouring down blood and... Uh, um, I've had several friends who've never let me forget that. Yeah, wow, that's incredible. I mean, some yeah. some onlookers might take that as a bad sign, but that's a positive right. I, reaction, apparently. I, I, I took it as, and it's never happened to me before or since. Uh, but uh, but there was just you know at, at fifteen or sixteen years old, whatever I was when when we heard that, it was uh, it was so exciting that my only physical response was to have my nose bleed. Wow, that's what music can do for you. Exactly. Has I that, have a visceral response. Has that ever happened to you as you were reading or if you were attending a reading by somebody? I know I've never had that response. Again, I've, I've, been, I've often been very, very, very excited by readings, um, and I've felt that and both, both private readings and, and, and in public readings. So Emily Dickinson said that famous thing that... Uh, that when when she was in the presence of real poetry, she said uh, um, it would blow the top of her head off. Uh, huh. And I certainly felt those hairs on the back of my head get uh, prickly, and I've I've certainly felt that. And I and I I feel often moved to you know moved to moved to tears. That that has often happened, and not moved to tears because of the subject matter in particular. Although that can work too, um, but moved to tears just by the sheer beauty and presence of the writing. Um, hmm. Well, yeah, you you wrote about that in an article in the Michigan Quarterly Review, like uh, uh, holding first editions in your hands? Um, well, did I? Oh, yes, I did on, the, on online, yes. I've got to think what, thing, what piece that was. Yeah, no, you hold first editions in your hand, particularly first editions of books that have become important to you. Um, and it can be, it can become a very sort of exciting thing and maybe there's just a part of me that's a collector that you know gets mm-hmm. the whatever whatever that emotion is that collectors feel maybe it's partly that um but uh, every now and then i can particularly writers who are absolutely important to me um it's uh it's kind of great to hold a book like that and feel the object uh, the way the object was first out there in the world yeah you're one of those people if i may say like a, almost a fetishist when it comes to the <laughs> physical book I, it's true, but not all books. I don't co- sort of collect all books, just writers who are absolutely important to me. I've ended up with some books for writers who are not so important to me that are that are actually worth quite a bit of money. And I've sold, I've actually sold some of those books just uh, because I realize that's going to be more important to someone else. But I have, I have other books in my library that I would never sell. 
Uh-huh. Um, I mean, oh, I think some of these poor people who are going to grow up with nothing but electronic books, I mean, well, maybe they're not going to be able to have that uh, that fetishistic uh, attachment to these objects. Uh, when I, I think that's kind of too bad for them. Yeah, I although, like too how um, although although if we can keep using this word, you are a fetishist uh, with with these books. That kind of implies almost as though you put them on a pedestal that you you flip each page, you know, with the ut- utmost delicacy. But actually, you said before that you really do have a working library. That's your personal right. collection. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's I think as any writer, and then I mean, I mean a, a fair amount of what I've done over the years is write about books. So I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I mark up books. I mean, you would see some of my books with all the the, the marginalia that is in them, mm. um, and sometimes that marginalia is uh, is particular is, is attached to the information that's in the book. But sometimes it's it's way out there. It's like, oh, that's where my imagination went when I was while while I was reading that paragraph. That seems to have nothing to do with the uh, the information at hand. Um, so yeah, no, my my library is definitely a working library, and and uh, it's a pretty big library now. I think I probably have ten or twelve thousand volumes in it. Um, but uh, but surprise, I mean, I think my wife wishes that it wasn't quite so big and didn't take up quite so much of our personal space. Mm. But uh, but but I really do use it. I mean, I'm, there are oftentimes I'm find myself going into obscure corners of my library, which by the way is very well organized. Um, it's organized in sections, and it's alphabetical within the sections. Wow. It may not be organized in other things in my life, but uh, if you look at my library, you'd think I was OCD. Um, but, yeah, so uh, so you, you're talking about um, the marginalia uh, in terms of the notes in your working yeah. library, which leads yeah. us back to the title of your Good. your book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, since I do spend a lot of time with natural histories, both natural histories that are are written for the general audience, probably more time with those because I, I'm always trying to figure out the names for things, the trees and the birds and the bugs and the animals. Um, but I also have you know a fair amount of of natural histories that are more scientific, and I I realized that I um, sometimes when I actually did find these marginalia, I'd go, wow, isn't that kind of cool? Uh, and then I just sort of said, well, my interest. My interest in the natural, um, in that in natural history, is not primarily a scientific interest. My interest is on the margin. Although I like, I like to think that that uh, at least sometimes I collect data that that you science types might find useful, um, and I do contribute it from time to time in surveys and things like that. But but by and large, it's it's tangential. It's a, it's a, my way of being in the margins. My way of connecting um, with the world around me, but but not necessarily in a scientific way. Mm-hmm. So uh, so when I look at some of the scientific stuff, I can try to understand it in a different way, um, more from more more from the margin, more from the side, more tangentially. And so uh, I wanted to write about that. Um, so I wrote some poems that respond to both respond to scientific things and other things that just come to my mind when I'm involved in those projects. Yeah, so I was wondering how in in this book about natural history, uh, did poems like the criticism of my French poems or my daughter's narcolepsy, how did those fit in there? <laughs> well, I mean, yes. Yeah, so so um, even though there are all these poems dedicated to, to scientists and, and some of them are actually using scientific information, um, I mean, I never. I have. I have one child, 
and I never get very far away from uh, thinking about um, her and her her problems. So, and that's um, Faith, and she worked at the biological station while I was did. working there too. Oh, did she really? Yeah, yeah. She was. She worked. She worked uh, in the kitchen one year. She was just up last weekend, as a matter of fact. She still has friends up here, which is good to see. Uh, and now people her own age are the undergraduates here. So yeah. So my daughter and, and my daughter. Now that there is something at least a little bit scientific about narcolepsy. And to realize that one had a child who, uh, when she was an early teenager, and she'd just be falling asleep all the time, and we, you know, we would just say, "Well, turn the phone off, you know, and get some sleep, and we'll fall asleep in class." And she saying she was always saying, "Well, yeah, nobody, nobody else I know sleeps like this." And finally, one day, she was at a stoplight and fell asleep oh, and when no. she was driving, fell asleep at a stoplight, and she called us up and she says, "No, something is wrong with me." And we, you know, went to a sleep and we checked, and she was classic narcoleptic. And uh, so suddenly all these sleep episodes made sense. So I wrote this uh, little poem um, in the front while I was writing these other little poems. Here's the poem. Let me read it to you. Yeah, please. Um, it's called My Daughter's Narcolepsy. Before we received the official diagnosis, we loved to recount her sleep episodes. My favorite, Blue in front of those gigantic paintings David made celebrating the coronation of Josephine and Napoleon before the French nobles, my daughter drooled on the bench. <laughs> so um, we, we have, um, we would always tell stories when we traveled or when she traveled. She, you know, she's a, she's a, for some, for an narcoleptic, she's a very adventuresome traveler. Um, and so we have pictures of Faith sleeping in all kinds of interesting things. Oh, that is great. Uh, at the Parthenon. Last year she was doing a study abroad in India, so we have her sleeping on the front steps of the Taj Mahal. Um, you know, just all over the world, Faith is sound asleep. Um, yeah, in the midst uh, of such grandeur. Exactly, exactly. And not too many tourists fall asleep in the on, in the Parthenon or, or on the Acropolis or in front of the Taj Mahal or in the middle of some ostentatious legislative, legislative building. Faith will just fall asleep on Pompeii. She fell asleep at Pompeii, you know, so it just goes out for five minutes or so and, and does that. Now, the, 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 the poem, the one about my French poems, that's, uh, that's just very different. And I was thinking about, uh, oh, a time in my life, and the poem before that I'd written, which is probably a little closer, um, and I was thinking about how we recognized bird call in the poem before, the bird, bird song, and how I recognized nightingale song um, years ago when I was doing my bohemian years. Yeah, that's that Hitchhiking and Immortality. Hitchhiking and Immortality. Well, let me read you that one, too. So Hitchhiking and Immortality, um, and this one, um, I, was, I was thinking about bird song, um, and then it was like, how did I know that this was a nightingale when I heard it? But but I did. So I was young. I was probably 19 or 20. I was hitchhiking. Um, and then I had this little moment. All, again, these little marginalia poems are all eight lines long, so they're all very short. So here's hitchhiking and immortality. I was not paying much attention in those days, but still recognized it immediately. Nightingale song, full-throated and resonant, drifting out of the woods beside a highway somewhere in central France where no cars slowed in scintillating evening light and where I thought I might never die. Nightingale, of course, being associated with Keats, and Keats hmm. did the ode to the Nightingale, and then he also did the ode on immortality. 
Uh, well, actually, I know that was Wordsworth, wasn't it? Yeah, I got to get my people right. But in in Keats's uh, Ode to the Nightingale, um, the uh, um, it, 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 our own mortality comes up there. It is a moment of our own mortality. So, I was, so, so all that, and then suddenly I remembered this other moment um, about my time in France and, and my crazy French girlfriend. Mm-hmm. It was very hard on me, and I was trying to write poems in French. And this is what happened when I showed her my. My poems in French, the criticism of my French poem. Our relationship was probably over by then, but I let her read the only copies, each clean and short with simple, fragile lines. She walked past the window, reached out, and dropped them all. Uh. Our poems fluttering onto streets or into those clipped Parisian trees. Some caught a breeze floating up away. Did you recover yeah, any of those poems? None of those poems. Those poems were gone. Oh, my god. One of the things that didn't fit in the, in the poem that she lived on the seventh floor. So, oh uh, the poems just went drifting on. I have no idea what uh, what anybody ever thought of them. No, I never recovered them. You know, I had notes on a few of them, but those poems were gone. But, you know, I was 21 years old, and they were poems written in a language not my own. It's, they probably served a good purpose floating through the skies of Paris. Oh, that must have been magical for some Parisians <laughs> that day. Yeah, what is this clumsy poem with <laughs> this hokey French? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, who knows? That was a long time ago. What is that, 1972 or something now? So, yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. Um, So let's just take another break here, and I'll say that you, the listener, are listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and we have Keith Taylor with us. He's talking to me from the bio station. So here we are again. All right. Um, I didn't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, we're still here. Uh, okay, so you just read us several poems from your book that came out last year in 2011 called Marginalia for a Natural History. And many of those poems are dedicated to people and many of whom that I actually know. Uh, All right. <laughs> scientists at the bio station. And right. so I was wondering if they know that you've dedicated those poems to them. They they do indeed. I was very I, I made I made sure that they knew. Um and as I was the poems are all like I said before, the poems all ended up in a in a very rigid little form, eight lines long, and actually I counted syllables, nine syllables a line. Huh. And and one of the first poems that I wrote I'd been to we have wonderful lectures up here. Sometimes I can only understand small parts of those lectures whenever they deal with those statistical things that you guys have to deal with. I don't understand a thing, of course. I just sit there and try not to look stupid. Um, but I was listening to a great lecture by mammologist at U of M named Phil Myers. I, I think you know him. Sure, sure. Um, he does mammals at the, at the University of Natural History, and he's a professor in the uh, Department of, uh, of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And he was giving a talk for years and years and years. Phil has been measuring 
the movement of mammals around our state. And he traps them, or even he sees roadkill, and he enters them in data on his little computer in his car. Um, and one of the things he's been studying is the movement north of the white-footed mouse. It used to get about halfway up the state and then stop, and then the deer mouse took over. But in the 30 years he's been measuring the movement of this mouse, mouse the white-footed mouse has moved all the way up the lower peninsula of Michigan, and the deer mouse is now uh, is now only in the upper peninsula. Uh, so, and I was sitting by his lecture, and of course he's not going to make any wild speculations about that. But I'm the poet; I can make the wild speculations. <laughs> so, uh, so I think all these things we hear about global warming, um, the melting ice caps, and and uh, the polar bears drowning, and the, the Northwest Passage being opened year-round uh, in northern Canada. Nobody ever talks about the mouse, you know, just the little mouse. So I started writing this poem, and, and I would just oftentimes organize poems. I would just just count syllables because it forces me to find new words and it forces me to make hmm. lines in other ways. And then I can abandon it later on as in the making of the poem. I often do. So I was all these things, I was, and I did that while well, writing after Phil's lecture. I was going, it's not this, it's not that, and it's not this, it's just the mouse. And I cut out all the beginning stuff. Um, and, and I ended up with this little poem, Not the Northwest Passage, which is dedicated to Phil Myers, and which I, I cleared with him before I, before I published it. So, Not the Northwest Passage, just the white-footed mouth, delicate and doe-eyed, only 25 grams of unrelenting passion pushing north, a few feet each generation, through duff on the forest floor, old logs or tunnels under deep snow, always north attacking the necessary and impenetrable wall of cold. So I'd done that for Phil, and it was this little poem, and I realized, oh, it's nine syllables per line and eight lines long. Isn't that interesting? The very next day, very next day, Liz, I, I had seen this bug, a damselfly, not the little blue kind we usually see, but a green kind with black wings, and the sun was coming through the black wings and reflecting up off the water and, it was kind of a neon, aqua blue gorgeousness about it. And I, I asked our entomologist at the biostation, who's a, one of our who's a she teaches bugs at the University of Oklahoma. Her name's Ola Fink. And I said, what in the world was that bug? And she said, oh, you see that bug everywhere. And I said, I do not. <laughs> she said, oh, yes, you do. It's everywhere. It's called an ebony jewel-winged damselfly. And... Uh, and then she and, and then it, you know, then I went home and I wrote that down and I counted those syllables, ebony jewel winged damselfly, and that was nine syllables. I'm thinking, whoa, huh. the universe is trying to tell me something here. So and then I re then I realized that Ola was indeed right. I was seeing this this the, the damselfly is in Ann Arbor on the Huron River and it's all the way north in in northern Ontario. Or, uh, Northern Ontario, but but in, in the Upper Peninsula on the Two Hearted River, and I, I really was seeing it everywhere. So I said, well, then I had to write a poem about that, and I had one line already: "Ebony Jewel Wing the Damselfly," one nine syllable line. So, mm -hmm. and after that, and that, so then I got going, and then it's just like a lot of this stuff started ending up as poems, and you know, people would tell me things, I and mean, I'm a bird watcher. I know birds pretty well. I know what birds do, but. I would often see little hummingbirds above me between the dead twigs of trees. And, you know, what are they doing there? Those aren't flowers. They're not going to pull the nectar there. 
And one ornithologist one time said, we were watching that, and he said, oh, the butterflies collecting the gossamer from spider webs to take off and, and put in, in the nest, in their nest. And, and the very next day, I was lying on one of these wonderful roads up here in our forest that I know you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just lying there looking up, and a, a, a hummingbird came and was doing that, and I felt kind of smug because I knew what it was doing. And then I saw it fly to the next tree, and then I found its nest. Very hard to find a hummingbird nest. They're so small and delicate. But I said, "Well, that deserves a poem." So you know, I got a, I got a poem out of that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so it sounds like they all kind of tumbled out of you, especially in the presence of all of the stimulation of the they, nature up there. Absolutely, they did indeed. They did indeed. And and you know, I mean, our uh, the landscape is the Upper Midwestern landscape is a is a unique landscape because of the presence of the lakes and of. Uh, I've written about them, um, and and but I, you know, I wanted to sort of have this focus, so I was able to get a lot of, a lot of these poems that would focus uh, in this particular part of of the Upper Lakes. Um, it was a, it's been a great thing to write about. Yeah. So, in in the book, um, you are capturing these moments in nature, and so yeah. you've said like T uh, interviewed you a couple of years ago, and you said that you'd like to think that when you or what you write about is a reflection of something more than simply your set of interests. And you also, in another interview with Stephen Gillis, you said that um, that a poem can reach beyond the entirely subjective moment. So what I was wondering is um, what makes one of these moments in nature that you experience powerful to you, and what do you think, or like, what is it about the moment that you think will be powerful to others, to the reader? Uh, I'd like to say that I knew that from the get-go, but but I'm not sure that we ever do, or we we know that immediately. It's it's uh, sometimes a poem has to have a life for a while before you realize that it it can indeed reach past its moment to other readers. So sometimes um, it doesn't. Sometimes they kind of fade I, yes, away. Absolutely. Sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes I can be very excited about something and be absolutely convinced of its brilliance and. Uh, very clearly, it doesn't. It doesn't have a life on any on uh, with anybody else. I think these little moments. It's it's partly and 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 the part of me that is also an environmental advocate. Um, there's a lovely line from uh, from the poet Ezra Pound, um, who was un- very unlovely in many aspects of his character. Um, but one of his one of his rules of writing, he was always big for setting down rules, which is why he became a fascist. But, but one of his rules was the natural object is always the adequate symbol. Huh. And I think if we think of that phrase in, in, in terms of what we know um, as, as evolutionary biologists, the natural object is always the adequate symbol. Our imaginations have evolved in a natural environment. Um, they evolved before we were um, urban people. Our imaginations probably evolved even before we were agricultural species. Um, so the things, that, the, the sort of structures of our imagination uh, respond to uh, the things in the natural world in some very basic way. Uh, and I think when we can stay open to those imaginative responses to the things of the natural world, uh, even when the natural world has been um, has changed and has altered and as much under assault as it is now, um, we can still 
find something that will certainly move us and maybe will move another reader or two or five hmm. um, as, was... as we try to try to find those natural objects that function in and of themselves that have symbolic weight in and of themselves hmm. yeah very poetically stated keith taylor well thank you Liz. So okay, so I'm I'm really enjoying our conversation, but we do need to talk about ghostwriters. Ah, okay. And okay, can well, I? Yeah. I mean, I I don't usually say this when I DJ music and stuff because you know uh-huh. my opinion doesn't matter that much. But I've got I I want to tell you that I really like the book. Do you really, Liz? Well, that's great. I'm glad you do because I know you're a scientist and your opinion does matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would be willing to bet that it 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 matters to people who listen to the music and everything too. Well, yeah, I'm glad you liked the book. It was a it was a bizarre. It was a fun book to do, and you go from talking about poems about science to stories about ghosts. Yes, seem like I'm I'm all over the map, and maybe I am. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I want to yeah. talk about that too. But can you first? Uh... Sure. Well, this is this started uh, my my co-editor on this, Laura Kishiski, my colleague in the English department, and a, a, a wonderful poet and novelist um, with lots of books and lots of big national prizes and a big international reputation. Um, she, and she's been a good friend of mine since she was an undergraduate and back in the eight, well, maybe I shouldn't say how long ago she was an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. And I was a bookstore in Ann Arbor and we, so we, we started a friendship then. Um, but she, uh, she'd written a, another ghost story that was in a book of, uh, called, edited by a woman named Alison Swan. The book was called Sweetwater, Women's Writing, Writing of the Great Lakes. Um, and and uh, I was teaching that book up here, and Laura's story was a ghost story. It was a ghost story about a ghostly woman seen in the Presque Isle Lighthouse over by Alpina. So, and the students, of course, loved that. That was the thing in that whole book of writing about women about the Great Lakes that they liked the most. So Laura and I were emailing, and I told her this. The students loved it. And, you know, and then I just, said, I just said, so, do you believe in ghosts? And she said, well, I don't really believe in ghosts, but there are people I know who are otherwise completely sane, um, who do, and who say they've seen them. And, and apparently the woman who told her the story that she based that short story on, um, and, she, and Laura said, she didn't want to tell, she was my college roommate, she didn't want to tell me the story. When I finally wormed it out of her, she broke into tears, um, but she had this story of this ghost. And then Laura and I just kept emailing, and we talked about all the literary ghosts, you know, the ghost of Hamlet's father, mm-hmm. the ghosts that Odysseus sees in the Odyssey and all these other literary ghosts. And I said, well, we wonder if we went to our friends, particularly, you know, a bunch of literary writers in the state of Michigan, um, and asked them to write ghost stories. Um, we both had some connection with uh, this wonderful, uh, these wonderful editors over at Wayne State University Press. Um, and we, we talked them into some interest in the book. So we and we said, well, we want a dozen stories, and we of course each wanted to write one. So we got to get, we got to find ten stories from Michigan writers. So we wrote about fifty people. We got about twenty-five stories, and we picked about ten of them. Um, and uh, they range all over the map. We did. We the two things we didn't do. We didn't ask people whether the stories mm-hmm. were true or not, and we didn't ask people whether or not they believed in ghosts. Mm-hmm. So we just let that ride. Now. Since then, promoting the book, I think I know what's true, and I think I know who believes in ghosts and who doesn't. Uh, but this book, the last year, has had a really extraordinary life around the state. People love to read about ghosts. Mm-hmm. 
um, it's been it's been fun to do. Well, yeah, some a question that I've been asking myself and trying to answer, but I haven't I haven't come up with anything. Is uh, you know whether or not you believe in ghosts? Does that affect whether they exist or not? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know I mean it's um, um, there are lots of reasons we need ghosts in our life. We need ghosts because. Uh, um, they they become they become a way we understand other people that we don't have contact with, um, maybe not the best way, maybe maybe kind of maybe kind of a cowardly way, but we we turn people we don't understand into ghosts. Uh, the very thing that Hamlet uses is the ghost of his father for. If you remember how Hamlet begins, Hamlet's just sort of sitting around stewing in his own juices, and he needs to be pushed by the ghost to uh, to actually act. So the ghost makes Hamlet feel guilty, and he actually has, has to act. Uh, there's this this whole idea that ghosts are connected to particular places. Um, mm-hmm. That that when we are in places, we 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 feel the ghosts of the people who've there in the past. Psychological reasons for this, you know, might not be too hard to look for, but uh, but but do they exist? I have to I have to say with that I have had several ghostly experiences in my life. But I really don't believe in ghosts. Hmm. So, so I you come out and say it that I you're drawing right the line right there. I come right out and say it. I do not believe in ghosts, but yet I've seen several. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay, yeah. And you you just broached upon something that you and um, Laura wrote in the preface, and another thing that you said. I'll just read directly from this: is that. Um, uh, you don't try to explain these stories, although we admit that we saw them more as windows, saw them, as in the stories, more as uh-huh. windows into the minds of the people who reported them than as descriptions of reality, which I think is interesting. Exactly. When you find, when you find ghost stories, um, when you find ghost stories that, that often have a lot of appeal, they're often stories that uh, um, are not really literary in the way they're, they're that's not what they're after. They really want to convince you that they they saw these ghosts, and these ghosts were part of their um, part of their experience. Um, whereas, well, you know, what we we were interested in is stories that could be understood as as being literary stories, and uh, yeah. uh, the ghost functions. Although, you know, there are we do have people in there who uh, who there's a lovely story by Lolita Hernandez. Um, uh, the bakes, bakes, um, yeah. Uh, and and about the Dominican community over in Detroit, and and Lolita just looks at me when we have these conversations or when we've done events together, and she says, she says, well, keep anybody from the islands. Of course, we believe in ghosts. How do we keep in touch with the people back home? Mm. So uh, you know, it's, uh, she comes right out and she comes right out and says it. So uh, uh, it, it it was it's really been fun to do. It's fun to take around. The book was named a, a notable book for the, by the Library of Michigan, one of the Michigan notable books for 2012. Wonderful. So they've sent me around the state. Um, and, and, of course, a lot of the people who come out to do this are people who have had experiences of what they, they say go, are, are ghostly experiences. Um, and it's just been a lot of fun to talk to those people. i got a couple more of those before that whole thing is over, and it's, uh, it's fun to do. And these are not people that are, you know, I have had some exposure to some people who are deeply weird. Uh, and that's, that's, that's fun. Um, but most of the people you talk to are, you know, they're pretty ordinary citizens. Uh, they're not deeply strange. Um, 
So on on that note, on the note of strange people, can we take a really short break with one of your music selections, and then we'll be right back. Okay. Cigarette burns. I keep yearning for you through smoke dreams. Okay, Keith, I have this question for you. Sure. Where do you think is the creepiest part of Michigan? Ooh, wow. It's, uh, Oh, there's some, I've been in some very creepy places. I have to say, I don't want to offend anybody, but there's something about the city of Niles. Oh, what what is it? Niles is on the St. Joseph River. It's just north of South Bend, Indiana, way down there in southwestern Michigan. There's there's very creepy big old houses. There's a cemetery on the south side of Niles. You can go in in the middle of the day, and it feels very, very spooky. Hmm. There are also some great ghost stories in Detroit associated with some of the big old houses in Detroit. And if you can get into some of those houses, um, you can feel very, very odd. I can and see then that. Of course, then, of course, everywhere in the world, lighthouses are associated with ghosts because people lived alone and died alone mm-hmm. in those lighthouses. And we do, of course, have the longest coastline of any state other than Alaska. So we have... Uh, huh. lots of lighthouses, and we've got lots of lighthouse stories. So lighthouses are very weird, too. So where is Dead Man's Point? Dead Man's Point, interestingly enough, is uh, it's not called Dead Man's Point anymore. Dead Man's Point is where the Huron River empties into Lake Erie. Yeah. Um, and the big the big marsh on the south side of that, which is its more official name, is, is Point Mouillé, or Point Mouillé, or Point Mouillé, Wet Point, um, and it's a big marsh there now, which the DNR does with Exxon. And it's a great place to see birds. Uh, this late summer, there's even a white ibis there, the first white ibis ever seen in Michigan. Huh. Um, and uh, but, but back in the day, it used to be called Dead Man's Point because the Detroit River comes right down at that point. Huron River's coming out. It created this little point of land. The Detroit River comes down and hits that, and the dead bodies would collect on, the, on Dead Man's Point. So people in Monroe, an old friend and teacher of mine from Ann Arbor, now gone, uh, grew up in Monroe, and he, and he used to say, well, that was Dead Man's Point. We never called it Point Mouillet. It was Dead Man's Point. Yeah, that's so, that's so very creepy. And I should mention that I'm referencing one of your poems, again, from Marginalia for a Natural History, part of the, um, a, a series of poems in Mapping the River. Yeah, Mapping the River, and the river that I'm mapping there is the Huron, so... Yeah, so um, if we're talking about, you know, the confluence of uh, spiritual spirituality and science, um, you know, some people might think that's creepy because, whoa, dead bodies and their spirits and everything. But also, if we're, if we're going to be rational about it, too, you know, that's a great place for somebody to get murdered or dump a body. So uh, Absolutely. And if you, you know, and if, if back in the day when, uh, when all that gang war, you know, I mean, we're talking the 30s, um, 
all those gang wars in Detroit over with booze because Detroit was so close to Canada and they used to smuggle the booze in across the river. Yeah. Uh, when those, those, those bodies, you just dump them in the river and they float on down to Lake Erie and they're never seen again. Yeah, you do not want to be hanging out with that crowd. No, no, you don't. Not, not the rum runners in Detroit in the 1930s. No, mm-hmm. you don't. It's true. So these ghost stories in the book, Ghost Writers, the authors set the stories in specific places in Michigan. So they reference places that people from Michigan might recognize. But there are also other decidedly specific references to the state, I think. So, for example, many of the protagonists in a couple of the short stories have lost their jobs. Uh, Right. So I was wondering if you think that, or, or if you want to speak to that, or if you think those details add to the fear and the tension in those stories. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the reasons that one of the reasons that we go looking for ghosts um, is is because we use them to understand the things that are around. Mm. So if we're if we're in time, and, and you know, in our state, has said many times when when we've been under uh, duress, under economic duress. Um, people are people are frightened, and when people are frightened, they have uh, they they seem to be a little more open to other kinds of uh, experience, real or imagined, that uh, that feeds on that fear and um, our confrontations with the things that are outside of our mortal bounds um, are certainly stimulated by that. So so yeah, so they certainly do that, and then of course um, the the uh, I, I, I wanted, in the story that I wrote, I wanted to write about the, the, the racial tensions in the state. Um, people who don't have any sense of each other uh, because, and they allow the racial boundary to make a, make a, a, a complete, cut each other off into these little unattached communities. Um, and, and that's another kind of situation out of fear uh, where, the, where the ghosts can suddenly be uh, penetrating through these these otherwise impenetrable barriers of racism and difference. Yeah, so, that's very and, interesting. Yeah, so a lot of these things, a lot of these historical and sociological things can be, uh, uh, ghosts Ghosts can be the things that break these things down. Uh, so speaking of fear and tension, and I hope it's okay if I talk about it in this context, but sure. I just wanted to ask whether you have discovered anything more about your great-grandmother's suicide. <laughs> Uh, I haven't. You, you, that's a story I think I may have talked to T about before, too, yeah. Well, you wrote about it in the Michigan Quarterly in 2005. I did, I did. There's an essay. Um, I did, I discovered in a book in Ann Arbor, back when Ann Arbor had bookstores close to campus, um, I discovered the uh, the police report of my great-grandma, Irish immigrant great-grandmother's suicide in Western Canada in 1907, and, and no one alive knew that she had done this. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, I've been back there a bunch since. As a matter of fact, just this summer in June, I was back at the homestead, which is now completely abandoned and a kind of prairie ruin in the middle of nowhere. Um, I was out there with my uh, my wife and daughter um, on looking over the looking over the homestead and um, looking at her grave. I found her grave and that the stone had fallen and I had the stone repaired. Um, at her gravesite in this little abandoned, very spooky cemetery, all by itself out in the middle of a western prairie hill, um, and uh, I've done a little more work and, and I've found a few more things. Um, I haven't been able to write much more about it, um, and this worries me a little bit because I want to write more about it. But uh, but so I've looked around. I've been back to Alberta a few times. I've talked to a bunch of relatives. I've gotten more material, 
but I haven't really written anything more about great grandmother and her her effort to. I, I did tell this story though, since we're talking about ghosts. I discovered that story in 1906 or 1996, mm-hmm. and she had killed herself in 1907 on the night of October 13th. On October 13th, 1997, at midnight, I went out there and I went down 10 miles down this little dirt road, and I parked in this little entrance to a field which is right by their homestead and it was cold and there were wisps of snow in the air and it was midnight to one in the morning and I opened the windows of my car and I just sat there waiting to see if great grandma might visit me 90 years after the night of her suicide did she 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 didn't not visit me but I was really spooked huh (laughs) I was glad to leave well, that's funny because, you know, what if she came a hundred years afterward? Did you go there know, in 2007? I, I didn't go there in 2007. It's true. I didn't. Uh, you know, it's, I probably should have. Uh, maybe I should have, would have upped my chances. But uh, and gotten out and had enough guts to get out and walk around and uh, uh, walk around the old homestead and see if, see if she might visit me that way. But, that is so funny that you put yourself to the test like that. I did indeed. I did indeed. And, and I didn't see any ghosts, although I was clearly spooked. So. Um, okay, so the so getting back to this kind of confluence of marginalia and ghost writers, yeah. uh, they're very different books, and they were both released in the same year, so you presumably were, well, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you were working on them at the same time, but um, in your interview with Stephen, again, um, I'll reference uh, something that you said. You, you said that poets and fiction writers may criticize you for a lack of commitment to one genre. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I, I have several books um, where, um, I mean, so that these two books came out, so I was doing poems in one, and I was I was editing stories in another uh, and then I have some books where I've mixed them together, where I have prose and poetry in the same book. So sometimes I worry that, you know, that, that what that does is uh, simply say, well, the fiction writers aren't going to take you seriously and the poets aren't going to take you seriously. I thought that for quite a while. But, you know, I keep now that I've kept doing books and they, they keep coming and uh, um, it seems as if the world is not ignoring me as much as I might have thought uh, whenever I did that interview with Steve uh, five or six or eight years ago. Um, so I'm I'm uh, I'm not feeling as ignored as I, I might have felt a few years ago. I'm I'm, I'm feeling as if as if the world is uh, is paying attention in some small way now, which is a good thing. Huh? Yeah. Well, I never I never quite understand all of that. I mean, you know, I'm speaking to you from a free form radio station where uh-huh. we we intentionally put. Uh, disparate things together and also i mean you work at the biological station um teaching an interdisciplinary course yeah so that's a very good thing maybe maybe some of us are just you know maybe some of us are 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 a little more comfortable when we uh, we find ourselves outside the categories yeah and that's but that's tough and you know i mean you know you know that from your your very successful academic life it's very tough in academia to say to, to to willingly admit that you're interested in more than one thing. Yeah, and um, I don't I don't like that one bit. I want to break out of those boxes. I want to break out of all boxes. Well, good, and I, I have great faith that you will do that. Hmm. <laughs> uh, now that now that you're free. <laughs> well, I think freedom and uh, and mixing everything together is a good point for us to end our interview, right, since we have to. Right. We didn't cover everything that I wanted to, I've got to say, but I think it was a fantastic conversation. Well, 
look for I will look forward to us talking again, Liz. Oh, sure. me too. Me too, indeed. Okay. So thank you, Keith Taylor. And so I'll see you soon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's hope so. So okay. and I also want to thank T. Hetzel uh, for allowing me to sit in, you know, just to keep the seat warm for her until she comes back from Florida. And yeah. this has been Living Writers on WCBN with Keith Taylor. Like a bird on the wire Like a drunk in a midnight choir I have tried in my way To be free Like the worm on a hook Like a knight from some old-fashioned book have saved all my ribbons for thee. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, the 1st of August, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, the U.S. expands relief for farmers and ranchers hit by a severe drought that now covers more than half of the nation's counties. We'll talk to NOAA's lead scientist, 